we own land that was taken from other people, you know, a few hundred years ago mm-hmm. that, that lived in this land. I, I think what I will leave it at for this moment is the fact that we chose to live somewhere without really thinking twice about the implications of it. And, and that's white privilege, being able to choose where you go without having to think too much about it. Welcome to season two of the 3 to 10 project. Two white cisgender males who have been friends for over 25 years, exploring race, gender, and education by talking through the intersection of our identities with our experience, as well as what we are reading, listening to, and thinking about. And most importantly, considering how to show up moving forward. The 3 to 10 project reflects our long-term commitment, three to 10 years of working together to build community and culture, inspired by author Resma Menikum. You can learn more about Resma and find a link to the podcast that inspired us on our website. I'm Mark. I'm Reed. This season, we're framing each episode around an essential question. Sometimes we may uncover answers, Usually, we'll end up with even more questions. And as we move to hold ourselves accountable, we'll wrap up every discussion by setting specific intentions for action. How will we be moved to act, and what will we do? This is Season 2, Episode 8, Does Where We Live Matter? Recorded March 22nd, 2022. For the second episode in a row, we are joined by our good friend Jason, a New Jersey kid transplanted to Atlanta, as we explore the significance of where we each live. Hope you enjoy. Okay, good morning. Not not just Mark. Good morning, Mark and Jason. We good got morning. a big crew today. Good morning. How is everyone? Doing all right. I, it, it is uh, interesting right before we started to record we're talking about, you know, things that we're doing over the weekend and the fact that you are skiing and I'm like, you know, and it's like 65 degrees where I am in Atlanta. It's a little jarring. <laughs> well, this is good. We're diversifying the outlooks of the people on this in, in, in really broad ways, at least geographically, <laughs> right? So, I mean, because Jason is joining us for the second time here, which is awesome. And uh, probably not the last time. I'm, I don't know if we have to rework the intro to say, three white cisgendered males um we'll see we'll see how much of a commitment jason's ready to, to make here how are you mark good i'm not running but i am outside working in the garden good i'm glad you're active my mom listens to these and the last one when when mark was not running she was a little worried that he was falling asleep during the podcast so it is yep. a different thing so you're back active for us huh? yep 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 you know, we were together, the three of us last time, we had a great conversation. And so let's sort of check in on, as we always do, sort of anything that's happened since then. Um, Jay, since you're sort of the honorary guest again, do you do you want to talk about anything you've been thinking about or doing or relating to what we talked about last time? Sure. So one of the things that came up was this idea of mindfulness, <clears throat> you know, something that I know a little bit about, mainly you know, by osmosis of like others. And that's something I think I actually practice or do intentionally. But one of my intentions was, all right, well, you know, over the next week or so, since our last conversation, let me try to like, you know, read more and learn more about some of the don't say gay bills that are happening in Georgia. And while I'm doing it, really try to think about how it makes me feel, not just like read about it and do what I typically do, which is just you know, think about it as like a policy or like, you know, or like, what are we going to do about it tactically? But I don't really think about when I read things like that, how it makes me feel. And so, you know, the result is that it, you know, the f- trying to do it 
with mindfulness, it wasn't like it was in this amazing revelation. Uh, it was just a little awkward to like, be like, all right, so how am I feeling about this? Um, but the one thing that did come through was that I still, um, you know, even though I was thinking about my, my children, when I was reading about the things that are happening in Georgia, um, which is similar to in Florida, which is, uh, basically anti-trans and anti-gay, um, I, and this is like, the good is like, you know, I, I think I empathize with like, yeah, this would really make me feel this and, um, and, and sort of persecuted and, and fearful and, and, and such if I were um, gay or trans. But then I also realized that because I was thinking about how I was feeling, I also realized that uh, the not so good was, you know, I'm, I'm also like wondering if people are gonna make a too big a deal of it. And that was something I probably wasn't thinking about. Like I was like immediately going to like, oh, you know, like, you know, this particular bill is not quite as bad as the one in Florida. Uh, it's just for private schools. It's actually not gonna impact my, 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 my children because they go to public schools. And I realized like, yeah, that whole thing of like um, still dismissing things um, because it doesn't, I don't think intellectually like, like it's gonna impact um, was like sort of my revelation that even if I'm trying to be mindful and mindful about things, I still tend to go to my default and, um, and think about it like a policy person. So Jason, when you were talking about being mindful, I think this idea of like noticing when you're just kind of thinking about the politics or like your thinking or attitude or, um, perspective or whatever your shifts that's mindful that's being mindful too like mm -hmm. it's just the noticing you don't have to have a certain feeling mm -hmm. at least from my perspective to be mindful it's are you mindful of what you're feeling even if the feeling is nothing yeah so just wanted to say that yeah no that's helpful it, it, yeah, for some reason, I, and this maybe go into some other conversations, you know, I was like, if I'm going to be really mindful, I'm going to really notice like how empathic I am. Right. What you may be noticing is, oh, I don't feel anything. Wow. That's interesting. What's it yeah. like not to feel? Yeah. 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 When you, th especially if you think you should. Um, yeah. And what's that like? What's yeah. it like? to think you should feel something that you're not feeling. What's that feel like? Mm. Yeah. All that is, is the same. It, it, there's not a like type of way to be feeling if you're being mindful. I think that's a big, to me, just want to say it's like a misunderstanding. It's kind of like, if I'm being mindful or practicing mindfulness or even meditating, like I'm going to be calm. Actually, you might be more irritated because you're slowing down and noticing things that you don't typically. Yeah. Or if I'm being mindful, I'm going to be anti-racist. But in fact, actually, no, I'm, I wasn't. I was being actually as racist as I was before. I just noticed. Sure, you're just maybe noticing in a little different way. Yeah. I don't know if and, and I don't think like being mindful is a one like uh, mindful. So I'm anti-racist or like I think it's. As you build awareness of what's happening in your mind, your body, then that gives you an opportunity to think about what you might want to do differently moving forward. Huh, I'm noticing this, I'm noticing these attitudes, I'm noticing these biases. Um, maybe I will go do this next. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I might jump in here because I think there's a connection with the thing I was going to work on, which really had to do with awareness. And we were speaking about discomfort on sort of an anti-racist journey last time. So I said I was going to be try to be a little more aware when I was in interactions with people of color. I was thinking specifically of colleagues of mine. Where was discomfort coming up or not coming up and how was it affecting how I'm interacting or what I choose to say. And I guess I would just, you know, I did have several different meetings and interactions and, you know, work uh, with some colleagues of mine. And I will, I think I will simply say that I realized I 
get to a little more of a state of hypersensitivity or hyper awareness when I'm in a group situation and potentially there's one person of color that we're interacting with. And it, I'm very aware, right. That there's, Oh, there are three white people in this conversation and there's one black person. And I'm very aware of perhaps what that person is saying and, and what, how I'm sort of thinking and responding at a level that's much more than with, with other colleagues, with other white colleagues. And so I don't, I didn't find that I was or was not saying or doing anything because didn't really have any um, points of tension or anything in in the last couple um, meetings and interactions that led me to sort of try to go towards safety or push towards discomfort. But I just was more aware than I had been of how I'm self-monitoring what I'm doing and what I'm saying not just on the level of sort of a professional person interacting and trying to decide, oh, do I have something to add to this or not? But also the level of, geez, I'm a, I'm a white man interacting in this situation right now and not wanting to do or say, you know, what would feel like the wrong thing. So um, it, it's obviously just something that I will, now that I've started to think about it a little more, probably continue to be aware now how that leads to action we'll see. And I'll be most interested in more complicated situations where perhaps there's disagreement or some kind of, you know, conflict that we need to work through what the interactions will feel like there and where I will go in terms of discomfort, either shrinking from that or pushing into it. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, Just, I, you know, kind of, rounding out this kind of what we were working on type of thing. Um, I think I was just kind of going to be a bit more aware too in kind of situations that had um, weren't just white people around. And I, I'm not sure how much I actively did that. But one thing that I've been thinking about on that note is this past week, there were the Supreme Court hearings, right? Or the hearings for the next Supreme Court justice, right? Uh, Judge Jackson. Uh, and I think about, you know, like, and those were harsh. Like there was some, you know, I'll just say some nutty things going on in that. Some really political stuff. It's, I think this is a good example of like, it's really easy as a, uh, certainly as a white male to like, read about it, kind of intellectualize, think of this, you know, even be kind of disgusted about it and so on, but then, okay, that move on where as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I'm interacting throughout the week with um, black women who are probably, you know, have to be experiencing that whole process so very differently, yet you'd never know it when they show up to this meeting or that meeting or whatever. And I was just thinking about like, gosh, it's what, what is it like as a white male to show up authentically when these type of kind of highly racialized issues are going on in the public domain? And then on the flip side, what is it like for my colleagues when they're kind of probably experiencing all that so very differently, but then have to just show up and interact with these white men. As a white male, is it up to us to broach that topic as like, hey, let's talk about this or like, you know, to notice something or is it, you know, respect boundaries and not bring things up? Like, so like who, if, if you know, because I think that's a powerful moment in history. And, you know, I think it deserves like in almost any sort of workplace environment, some sort of conversation, who's responsible for bringing it up first or to offer it as something to talk about. My first reaction to that, Jason, is thinking that, first of all, this is a, a specific 
moment in history. It's something we're all paying attention to or, or many people are paying attention to. But I, I guess I would say that's probably true of a lot of stuff. Like it almost feels like there's something in the news every week like mm. that. I mean, it's different, but it's, it's not like, oh, suddenly here's a situation where the issue of race is rising to the top of a news event. Like that happens every week. So part of it is I think there's always space and time and things to talk about. I guess the way I approach it, because this like that, actually, the, um, uh, the the confirmation hearings did come up in a meeting I was having um, with um, a, a group of colleagues, including a person of color, including a black woman. And I think she may have actually raised it. And we briefly talked about it. And I think that happens with other issues, too. But I don't go into conversation saying. Let me. I feel like I should bring this up because it is a matter of um, it's like an elephant in the room or something. Like, I, f- I feel like we always need to be aware of maybe what we need to talk about this moment. I don't actually feel is that extraordinary in terms of something that would be weighing heavily on people. I feel like those moments are happening all the time and we either are or are not sort of trying to be aware and making space for conversations and then contributing to those. I mean, I'm not, I don't hesitate to contribute my thoughts to those things when they come up, but I don't necessarily initiate those conversations. And and I think I'm not going to try to answer that question either. I, I don't know if there's a right or wrong. It's more just an awareness that we are going through the world, experiencing it in one way and others are experiencing it in another way. And so, but then when we show up in spaces, especially kind of professional spaces, you know, just acknowledging, even if we don't say anything, that what people are bringing into that moment could be very different. And um, I think that that to me seems very important to just acknowledge. Um, and I like that. I, I like yeah. that word acknowledge. I think that that for me um, resonated versus me trying to, as a white male, like force a conversation or, or bring it up. But there's a, I, I feel that there's a difference between acknowledging something that's happening and that can look lots of different ways versus um, me trying to create or start a conversation, which maybe that conversation is not needed, wanted. Um, but acknowledgement, I think, is always appreciated. And, and to be clear, um, what I'm saying, and I'm curious if you're thinking of it differently, is just acknowledging it even internally. Yeah. Hey, I'm walking into this meeting or the Zoom or whatever, this is happening in the world. Huh. Just being a, like, that's where maybe the, yeah, like the awareness of the social awareness of what other people might be coming into that moment with, yeah. which is obviously something we should be doing all the time about a million things. But, yep. you know, we, when we know certain things are happening in the world, yeah, even more aware. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it connects, but. I'm thinking there have been a few different times. I often lead webinars or online in the last couple of years, they've been online um, events that could have a bunch of people, you know, joining um, uh, from all over that don't know each other. And I do recall we happened to have one and it was right after in 2020, it was right after George Floyd the murder of George Floyd started to get attention. You know, I, I don't remember the exact timeline in terms of days or whatnot, but it was all of a sudden that, you know, just was sort of nationally we we're aware that this, that this uh, man had been murdered on the street. And I think organizationally, like we knew going into that, or I don't know if we knew this, we felt as we opened this webinar that was not about that specifically, um, it was about educational things that we needed to verbally uh, recognize that there was a national conversation starting about that and that it would probably uh, likely be on the minds of many of the participants. And that was all we did. I mean, we said that and sort of uh, as we were part of our opening and sort of setting um, some agreements of how we were going to operate together over, I think it was only an hour long thing, but we felt like we needed to say that to both signal that it was something we were aware of organizationally and understood that there were connections between that kind of thing and education 
and to acknowledge that other people might be coming in with that on their mind, whether or not it would come out in any of the discussions that we were going to facilitate. So that's sort of a different, but like in that case, I felt like there was, there was actually a responsibility in that case to say something. And so maybe the same would have been true if I was leading something this week about the Supreme Court hearings. I'm not sure, but that I, I'm kind of coming at that now thinking about it differently, Jason. Uh, you know, if you're sort of gathering people and convening mm -hmm. them and you have a responsibility for sort of the group, some responsibility for the group dynamic, there's a level of uh, maybe acknowledging awareness for everyone that maybe is an important thing to, to at least consider to do. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> So that was half the podcast, right? That there. was that was more than half the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's see where we go. So here's let's shift gears. When we spoke last time, and not all of this necessarily made it into our last episode, but Jason, you were speaking about where you live, and we got thinking a little bit about the implications of that. And what what I was thinking about was this. You know, we've we've all lived in a number of different places and we've all now, at least for uh, the foreseeable future, sort of settled in some certain places. And what I realize is despite having lived in, you know, New York city and a couple places in Jersey and having lived in kind of small town, Maine, and then out in the, the suburbs of Denver, we moved back to Maine. And when we moved back to Maine, we, intentionally decided to live on the coast for a few reasons. I mean, the reasons we talked about were wanting to be close to the water. The coast of Maine is one of the things that makes the state really a, a special and beautiful place. But Maine is often talked about as the whitest state. Sometimes Vermont tries to get in there and, and get ahead of us. But um, Maine is, uh, I think, demographically considered right now like the whitest state in the nation. And we're in a town that's probably whiter than the average in Maine um, and more affluent. And we made that decision almost without really thinking about it. But the issue of what are the implications of, of that and raising our son here um, is something we've touched on a little bit. And so the question I'd love to ask both of you is what is the impact of where we live? Like, what does it say about us, about where we've chosen to live? Um, and with all of this, with regard to anti-racism or thinking about the kind of people we want to be or the change we want to see in the world, what or make in the world, you know, how much does it matter where we choose to buy a home and have the neighbors that we have chosen by, and we've all chosen, we've had the ability to kind of make decisions about where we live. What's the impact of that? What does it matter? And so we can go anywhere we want, but that's kind of the thought that's on my mind um, as, as we're talking. I'd love to hear any of your thoughts about any of that. I mean, I think I'm excited to kind of dig into some of the details. And, but when you were talking, Reed, one of the things that, um, that resonated was this, the, the word choice. And I think that, you know, I've never felt, as an adult at least, you know, stuck uh, in where I live. Like, uh, you know, like I may not have liked it or, but I never felt stuck. Like I always felt like I had a choice. Um, and that, that, that feeling of I'm choosing to live here. Um, I think it's pretty powerful. Um, but Mark, do you have any thoughts? I think you kind of said two questions, Reed, like why, I don't know if it's so interesting to talk about why we chose as a most as much as it's like what it what's it like being where we are and how does that how does that impact us but don't um, you think the why is more important ultimately does the fact of where you are input impact sort of like yeah that, what's the significance the of that i actually like that, i'm curious about the why well those are wait you just said where so does where you are impact you that I think, yes, I'm like, kind of like, that seems okay. relevant to talk about, but like, why am I here in this place? I mean, I could tell you that story, but I'm not sure that's so useful in this conversation. As and your I, chickens and, are, right. or your rooster is crowing yeah. in the I background. Mean, right. I mean, we're here in this place more or less because of that. So, you know, it's where 
we could ha afford land where you could have animals and <laughs> yeah that's that um and okay so what's the yeah. impact yeah i mean then the impact is that it it's one of the quote unquote red areas of massachusetts which we didn't even realize when we when we moved here um and that might be a you know that's kind of seems like a relevant part of the story like kind of what jason was alluding to like we didn't even think about it we didn't need to worry about it and that's kind of i think that even goes back to what i said before about like what's going on in the news and stuff it's like this ability to go through life without having to worry or without having the same set of worries as as it's a it's that's that's white privilege we like this place we like this land um we you know didn't have to think much about uh anything else worry about anything else really because we felt very confident kind of no matter what it was we didn't even think about it like it it was what it what it would be and we'd be fine no matter what so there's a lot of implications there including you know and we don't really talk about this much because it's so assumed that we are we own land literally own it that was taken from other people you know a few hundred years ago mm -hmm. that that lived in this land and it's a, that's another whole crazy thing but I would say that I, I think what I will leave it at for this moment is the fact that we chose to live somewhere without really thinking twice about the implications of it. And, and that's white privilege, being able to choose where you go without having to think too much about it. Well, maybe I can um, add this and see where this conversation goes, uh, that there, as parents, Jenny and I wanted to make sure that our children went to a school that was diverse. Um, but here's the interesting thing. So we 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 were, you know, we put our name into a lottery of a school. It's called the International Community School that had a bunch of recent refugees. That's actually part of its its purpose is to uh, serve students that are in this particularly large refugee resettlement area. And so uh, we thought it would be absolutely beautiful to have our students uh, sit next next to folks from, you know, there's Afghanistan and Nepal and India. I mean, the kind of list goes on. It was like this United Nations. And we thought that was beautiful. The other side to that is our locally zoned school, which is less than a mile down the road. We're like, no, that's not going to be a good fit. It would have also been very diverse. Um, it would have been that my two children would have been the only white people in the school. And yet that felt totally uncomfortable. So, so there's a part of me, it feels like, you know, when we tell a story about like how we are as parents, like, oh yeah, we intentionally sent them to this very diverse school. It's ICS. There's all these languages. It's beautiful. It's, it's an opportunity to learn from one another. But at the same time, we also made the choice not to send them to their local school because we're like, I don't know, it's going to be good for them to be the only white kids in that school. I think it's making me think of, I don't know if you guys listened to Nice White Parents, which was a podcast series um, uh, that was really interesting, set in New York City a couple of years ago. But I think that podcast really brought to the front this idea that a lot of, and I'm not saying this necessarily about you, but a lot of uh, white families who have been in favor of maybe call it desegregation or simply um, more diverse school settings think of it in terms of the way that it can benefit their kids. Um, how, you know, my kid will be a better kid if they are exposed to a wider range of types of people, but not necessarily wanting the context of the school or the way the school is framed for their kids to be any different than before. They just want more, uh, you know, more races, more ethnicities, more religions, uh, more languages, more countries of origin um, around their child to to enrich their children, which will make their kids better in the world. Like I've certainly have have thought about that. And um, and that when the sometimes when the 
defining um, sort of power structures of the school that have benefited white people, for example, when those power structures are threatened, then suddenly like maybe diversity doesn't sound so great. Um, so I think that's just like a been a, I'm just kind of naming a, a larger uh, dynamic that I think has happened as schools, you know, over 50 years as, as schools have, have desegregated um, or maybe as charter schools have been created or more school choice has been created. Yeah. I mean, you know, Sam, when we were in, in Denver, Sam was the only white boy in his class um, for five years, four years, four years, five years. At a, and, at a really uh, fantastic school. We want to point out how good that school is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's an inside joke. Um, so, well, let's just name that that was the school that my wife started and that Reed, you were the founding principal of. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's the joke uh, or not joke. And, uh, well, no, and it, Caleb was there yeah. for, you know, my older son was there for three years and he was one of the only, you know, maybe there was one other white uh, boy in his class. Now they're in a school and in friend groups where all the kids are white. Um, and I, I do think that, again, like in the same way, there wasn't a lot of intention when we moved here, it wasn't like there was intention. We wanted them to go to the school where we started and that we, where we were, and we thought it was a good place for, in a lot of ways, but I do think um, it impacted them. I can, you know, I can tell that experience impacted them. It was a very different experience than uh, most, if not all of the people they're friends with now have had. And I do think it shapes the way they uh, see the world a bit. Um, and, uh, it'll be interesting to talk with them in 20 years or something, you know, and have, when they can reflect back, um, and be curious what they experienced that all like. Well, maybe we can, you know, we can continue to talk about like the experience of school for either ourselves or our children and how, and where we live, how that impacts that. But, you know, there's, there might be something in, about the particular community in which I live, which, you know, maybe may not be something that anyone else listening um, is living in the same situation, but I think that there's some interest in lessons. And so just kind of name it. So I, I live in a, a co-housing community in Atlanta that um, it, there are a number of co-housing communities around, around the world. I would generally say that they are fairly progressive communities, usually with an environmental focus that people who want to intentionally live in community uh, go to. So, you know, we live by a consensus driven model. Um, all of our homes are very close together. We have shared land, we have a farm. Uh, and, and, and even though there's not a religious sort of overtone, I, I would say that um, in this particular community, the Quakers were pretty foundational in its formation. So, and I share that because so I live in a community that is in many ways, very diverse. Uh, age um, uh, from, you know, older people who want to kind of live in place, um, actually die in place too. There's a number of folks, neighbors who, this is where they want to die, uh, as well as lots of kids. We don't have as definitely, if you look at like, where we live and just outside the, the walls of our community, it's not nearly as racially diverse. Uh, and so I would say probably 70, 80% of their, all my neighbors are, are white um, and probably pretty highly educated. A lot of folks uh, here, you know, have, you know, graduate degrees and doing that type of work. Um, and so, it, you know, and if you look at the yard signs, it's all Stacey Abrams and back then Biden and, and you know, Black Lives Matters, like everywhere. So, you know, it feels like there's like a bunch of people who are similar in viewpoints and in a, in a city that's pretty progressive anyway. I mean, Atlanta is, you know, fairly progressive, yet there are still things that happen that, that I think is really the crux and the reason why I'm sharing all this that make me doubt and wonder like how much of all this is sort of a facade and how much is it truly, are we 
um, helping each other, especially the people who are white in my, in my neighbors really kind of confront racism and be anti-racist. And I, I kind of have a hunch that, yeah, I think it's great that we have people who go out and every noon they, they hold up a sign that says honk if you believe Black Lives Matter. That's probably not as typical in other neighborhoods. Um, but yet, you know, there are things like we see uh, um, uh, strangers come through the community and our, and our community literally has a wall around it. So you can't just like walk the neighborhood folks can just like walk through, but you know, sometimes the gates open and, and immediately we have this listserv uh, so people can like email out. And like, if it's like, I've never heard of like, there's a strange suspicious person and that person ever being white, that person, even if it's not named in an email is black. And so that's like the, like maybe the conversation of like, you do all this work where we live should impact how we view the world. And I'm sure it does here at, at ELC here in Atlanta, but I still see like lots of examples of people who would say that they're very anti-racist and very progressive, still display a lot of the stuff that I would expect to see in like South Georgia. And how does that affect you, Jason? I mean, do you push back on that? Do you, are you just becoming aware of that? Like, what? So a couple of feelings that come up. One is like sort of disappointment um, that, that, and, and also, you know, one of the things that I, I've said uh, is that I think, uh, and so there happens to be like a, a lot of a pretty large demographic of like people who, used to be hippies, <laughs> you know, they're in like their sixties and seventies now, long hair, ponytail guys, uh, you know, uh, homemade dresses. Um, and, and yet they, um, some of the hardest folks to have a conversation with if you challenge them on things. And so uh, part of me wonders, like, if it's so hard for me to like have this conversation with folks who display all the trappings of being as progressive and still like you confront them and say like, Hey, you know, like, you know, one, why do we even have a gate? Why can't we have like our neighbors walk through? Um, it makes me a little disappointed and, of, and kind of fearful that maybe this, it's going to be really hard to change um, white people <laughs> uh, to be, um, or even myself. So what you're describing some aspects of that are not unlike where we live. Okay. In the sense that we we're not in a gated community here technically, but I would say we are uh, because of literally who can afford to live in our town and who has lived here. Um, both of which impact the ability of people who might look or even think differently from moving in. Um, not only is there an economic barrier, but I think, for example, a black family looking around in Cape Elizabeth would be like, hmm, do I really want to be the only black family in Cape Elizabeth, um, which is which is almost the truth here. And so what was what's interesting to me, right, again, this is a community that looks and sounds progressive. You know, the, the I once made a, a Zoom wallpaper. Um, of all the Black Lives Matter uh, signs that I took on one of my runs. I took a run and I just took a picture of every poster that I saw on my usual thing. And I was able to make this, um, this great collage that I used behind me in Zoom to just show how, you know, how progressive I was. You know, let's do a little signaling here. But, um, but really the community, when you start talking to people, um, like, you know, I've been... I don't know if disappointed is the word, but I think it's very clear. And we've talked about this on the podcast that one of the things I've been involved in is issues around some affordable housing. And as soon as there was a move to put some affordable housing into town, the mobilization of people opposed to that um, was not only dramatic, but successful. Like they shut it down and you, uh, so all those signs be damned. Like I'm living in a community that to this point has stated very clearly, we don't want to make this place more affordable so that other people could move in. Now, hopefully over time that will change. And there's some opportunities here for me to continue to sort of help 
fight that fight. But I guess, you, you know, I'm listening and I'm thinking, okay, so you and I are both living in places where not everybody is, is necessarily thinking or acting the way we'd want. Okay. Well, and I bet Mark, Mark would definitely say the same. So how does that affect us? I, and I wonder like to dig into like the, the why or what, I mean, it seems like as soon as white people feel threatened, that's when they start to rise up <laughs> and whether the threat is real or not, or should be, or rational, um, you know, like the housing, uh, affordable housing on your end, or just like simply being a black male walking through my neighborhood. You know, I think if I were to guess, <clears throat> if the folks who are saying something didn't actually really feel threatened, <clears throat> whatever that may mean to them, they wouldn't have done something. And I think that's this idea of threat and like losing a power or whatever the things are that, that, that happens. Um, if there's, I mean, since, you know, there's no threat, if you put a, a yard sign out front, probably at least not here. Um, maybe Mark would have a threat or feel threatened if, if you were to do that where he lives, um, uh, which would be interesting, Mark, to say, like, do you display your progressiveness openly uh, to your neighbors? So versus, yeah, we, we've had a, Black Lives Matter sign and uh, um, like uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere sign. And we've had them for a long time now, you know, basically since the real surfacing more in the public don't, you know, consciousness of Black Lives Matter. And it just, it, John claims it just got stolen, the Black Lives Matter sign. Hmm. Um, that is possible. I also think it is possible it, got kind of blown away but we've had it for a long time so it does seem odd that all of a sudden it disappeared um and then our other sign like the metal piece that was holding it down disappeared like the sign itself was there but it was no longer being held into the ground so that was kind of weird um but and and the kids yeah i mean that's another story it's like the kids have expressed like they don't like it they don't want those signs there and I should explore that more with them. But I, I think what I, I think is worth doing, maybe this is a way to wrap up and give us a little bit of an assignment is, I think in this episode, we've talked quite a bit about others. And I think, I think we should kind of put back the focus on ourselves, maybe over these next few weeks. Like, I think we should be asking what's coming up for us and how are we experiencing like things for ourselves like what i think i am a little on like i'm less interested in analyzing what's going on for other people and why and more interested in thinking about what's going on for me and for us and why and you know and then what are we doing about it um so i just kind of challenge us to take that stance um going back into choice and where we live, uh, our family's making a choice to move out of the country for a while. Um, but Mark, I, 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 I think you're right. It's my, my tendency is to think about like everything around me, not so much myself. And I think that, that if you forget to do that, you kind of miss the whole purpose of this podcast. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and you have this great opportunity, Jay, when you go away or whatever, when you go live somewhere else, Again, like not necessarily analyzing what's going, what others are doing, but what was it like for you, yeah. your family, and how did that, how did you think about your own behavior in, yeah, this yeah. new environment you're going to? And then well, maybe also, what are your, you know, thinking about what your intentions are as you go yeah. into the new environment? No, th there's a lot of, um, I have a lot of pride when I share about where I live because I think there's a lot of like cool things to, 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 to kind of tout uh, the farm and there's all these kids running around and it's, you know, um, and, and that's where I lead. And that's where I kind of go to is this idea of like ELC for me uh, when sharing with others, I get a sense of like, this is like such a great place for us to have raised our, our children yeah, at the same time, in the back of my mind, which I don't typically share, is this like this under like of like, yeah, but I'm also like, you know, it's actually really not as anti-racist, you know, even though there's all these signs are still like a lot of things. And that makes me feel that this work is going to be hard 
for white people because as soon as we feel threatened, we will shut down and kind of revert back to a, you know, a, a much more racist stance. And what I hear Mark trying to push on there, Jason, and I'm trying to think about this for myself is not just that the work, I mean, we know is hard for white people in general, but so how hard is it for you or what will it lead to for you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reality is like, I'm sharing this and I'm like, oh, I'm being sort of open and, 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 and vulnerable, but reality is like, I haven't done anything to, or said anything to my neighbors. Like that would be the work, <laughs> you know, that's like, you know, yeah. like I'm sharing like, oh, I'm disappointed, but it's like, I haven't said anything to anyone else. I haven't challenged any of my neighbors when they send out a, a, an email that, that is, you know, you would think it'd be easier if it's like a older white person who is outwardly very progressive to challenge them on being racist. I have found it just the opposite. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's like, they're so sensitive and immediately defensive that I um, have not figured out a good way to engage folks like that. I just want to ask you this question. This isn't for now, maybe, but just to explore, you know, you're framing it as like, you're not sure what to do. And I'm going to you know, make an assumption. Does it make you uncomfortable? And if so, what does that mean? I mean, I, I think it, it both makes me uncomfortable and also, and this goes into the whole, like one of the foundations of like white privilege is like, if I don't do anything, I can very easily kind of forget it. Right. Uh, and can be, like, it doesn't really impact my life directly. Um, right. So often I choose to take the easier path and, and ignore it. So Mark, you're suggesting yeah, yeah. that we focus on ourselves <clears throat> and think about what's coming up and how we're experiencing yeah. for ourselves in our own spaces. So yeah. what does that mean? For, I mean, is that what you're going to be thinking about over the next several weeks yeah. before you and I connect again? Yeah, I think that's a good one. Like in our communities, how are we showing up? And then, yeah, it's like, there's this question of doing some like interacting with others, but I think there's maybe it's, I'm going to try to go beyond that. I think of like, okay, forget about what other people are thinking and doing. What am I thinking and doing? That's where I want to focus. Yeah. And if I understand that I have thoughts about the implications of where I live and how that impacts me and my family and May and I think I could even call call it out as as some layers of guilt that I feel, and I might be certainly what I'd like to talk about next time is maybe sort of get a little more specific about that, and maybe think about that, and then think about because I don't think guilt gets us very far necessarily. It might lead to action, but um, but what does it mean? I mean, we have no intentions of moving. Like, so first of all, what does that mean? that we don't have intentions of moving and maybe what I could do between actually now I'm landing on something. <laughs> I think one thing I'll do, I think I'll engage uh, my immediate family. I mean, my wife and my son in some conversations about what they think is the significance of living here and yeah. how that affects us. And I want to understand a little bit their perspective and what they think it means for me. And maybe even talk with Joanna about like, why did we choose to live here? And then more importantly, what is its significance as we move forward? And and back to raising a child. I mean, we've got, I think where you live has a big impact, um, as Jason was saying, and a lot of positive impacts in this community on our son. But so I, my, I'm going to talk to both of them to help explore and understand um, what I'm experiencing myself. And then maybe I'll need your help to get pushed on what it all means next time we talk. Yeah, I think I'll help by being here to listen and talk. You're you are always there for that. All right. Well, that so we're gonna well, say good. So before you say goodbye, you know, I, I think Mark continuing to kind of bring it back to how you are feeling, like how I am feeling. I think is is an important part of it. I I am pretty. It's pretty common for me to kind of think about like what's around me, what's happening around me versus what's happening within me. So I, so I appreciate just the thought of 
you know, there is going to be something in the next week where I live that is going to be pretty blatantly racist. Um, instead of me saying like, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, uh, I, I think what would be actually uh, different would be how am I feeling about this and why am I feeling that way? And what am I going to do about it? Um, so just know that's sort of my, my work for the last couple of weeks. That's great, Jason. We, we're definitely going to uh, entreat you to come back again um, in the future because it's been really fun to connect with you. But also, I think talking to somebody that I've known for so long in this way um, has deepened just some of my thinking around, you know, just what we've talked about the last two times. So it's been kind of a gift to me to get a different angle on things because of my deep relationship with you. So thanks for joining us. And I'm excited, Absolutely. you know, well, I'm excited to, to have you talk with us again at some point in the future. Yes, uh, I am too. <laughs> All right. Well, with that guys, I guess we'll sign off. Uh, good travels, Jason, as you, Thank you. Uh, start, start, start exploring about potential other places, you know, to stay. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that story next time we come together and we'll hear yes. your updates, but but have fun um, you. on your explorations. And Mark, I hope you have a good uh, week ahead of you. Thank you. Yeah. Jason, be well. And thank you. Yeah. Enjoy. Yeah. And uh, I hope it's what you guys are looking for. Uh, we're going to Costa Rica next week. And, yeah. uh, and then that's probably where we're going to end up. Uh, we're going to move uh, mid June. So yeah, the pieces are really coming together. That's yeah. cool. So I'm excited. Have right, a good well, trip. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I, I don't know if this one uh, will, you know, if we raise the bar or if I just, uh, <laughs> we just sort of. There's no bar. There's no bar. Thanks for, for the conversation. Yeah. All right. Travel safe, Jay. Thanks. I appreciate yeah. it. Yep. Bye. All right. Thanks, Thank you for listening to the 3 to 10 Project. You can find all episodes on our website and through a number of streaming apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Casts. In this episode, we referenced the podcast Nice White Parents from the New York Times and Serial Productions, easy to find on most streaming sites. Do you have feedback or ideas for us to engage with? You can email Reed directly at reeddyer1, that's the numeral one, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you think these conversations could be valuable to others, we'd love if you passed the podcast link along. Finally, thanks as always to Random Chiz for our season two theme music. <laughs>